0: My name's Aaron. Uh, if I've not had the chance to meet you uh, as well, one of the pastors here, am really thankful to have this opportunity to open God's word. We are in Hebrews chapter, get this, two. Five weeks into this sermon series, we are now done with the first chapter. We are blazing through this book. We need to probably slow down. If you don't have a Bible, we have some available out in the lobby. We'd love to give you one. That would just be our gift to you. Uh, If you know somebody that doesn't own a Bible, you're welcome to take one and give it to them because uh, we believe this is God's Word, and we want everyone to have uh, their own copy of it. We're very privileged to live in a time and in a society where we have ready access to the Word of God, and so take advantage of that. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read straight through the passage. I'll pray, and we'll spend some time unpacking this here this evening. And it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church. (laughs) God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, in it is found life. And God, we even thank you for words like tonight where there's a, a word of warning or a word of rebuke, God, because we know that you're a loving father, and these words of warning, these words of rebuke, are intended for our good. You're a good father who loves his children. And so, God, I pray that um, as, we, as we dive into this passage, we hear this, this even stern word tonight. God, I pray that our defensiveness would just drop down. God, would you send your Holy Spirit to be with us now, to have soft hearts and, and teachable hearts because we want to grow, we want to be shaped, we want to be changed to look more like Jesus. God, would you guard my lips, help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth from your word, and help all of our attention to be focused in greater measure on Jesus Christ, in whose good name we pray. Everybody send, amen. A few years ago, we had a family emergency, uh, and such that I had to leave and drive from Tacoma area down to Eugene, Oregon. And <clears throat> that wouldn't have been so bad in and of itself, but there were two factors that made it really challenging. First, I had to drive overnight. We found out about this situation with an extended family member about seven or eight o'clock at night, and that meant by the time I packed up my my, my suitcase and was ready to kind of drive, it was nine, ten o'clock at night when I was leaving. Again, that wouldn't be too big of a challenge on its own, but the second factor was there was a, one of these snowstorms, kind of a, a occasional snowstorm that we get here in the Seattle area, and it was it was snowing and the roads were icy and there was fog everywhere, and that was a real challenge. Now, being originally from Alaska, I thought, no, this won't be too big of a problem. I know how to drive in snow, but within a very short window of time, I realized this is going to be a long road trip. This is going to be a long night. So I started out pretty good. I had some caffeinated beverages. I had some loud music cranked up, and I'm making good time, and I'm driving, and I'm, and I'm going. I'm just focused on this, this situation with the extended family member, and, and then I stopped somewhere to, to fill up for gas. I'd gotten south of Portland. I'm continuing on. I kind of got into that area where there's just not a lot. It was kind of in the middle of the wilderness, and around 1, 1.30 in the morning, the sleepiness hit, and I started kind of nodding a little bit, and I started not drifting into sleep, but definitely feeling a little bit dull in my senses. And I'm driving, and, and I'm trying to keep the music up, and, and I'm trying to stay attentive, but it's just not working. And all of a sudden, in the distance, I see a pair of headlights pointing at me. Like, oh, I haven't seen a car in a while. There's another car on the road. What are they doing out here at 1.30 in the morning, the crazy people? <laughs> oh, th- these headlights, they look like they're coming right at me. All these headlights are most definitely in my lane. And so I started slowing down these headlights are pointed straight at me, and it was kind of like being in a movie. It was a really odd scene. The the fog was so thick, I couldn't hardly see in front of me, and then in the blink of an eye, it was like the fog parted, and all of a sudden, about as far away from where I'm standing to the back of the room right here, was a semi-truck and trailer jackknifed across the entire side of the highway that I was driving on, their headlights were pointing straight at me, and I hit the brakes, and I skidded to a stop, maybe a car length or two away from running into this truck and trailer in the middle of the night. Let me tell you what, I was very awake for the rest of my drive. I got to my hotel room around 4 a.m. My heart rate was still just going 300 beats a minute. I was very alert. This frightening moment kind of woke me up and it helped me to finish the, the trip that I had started safely. The book of Hebrews has a handful of We call them the warning passages, and there's five primary sections in Hebrews where the author, the the writer of this sermon gives us a warning, and tonight we come to the first one of these warnings, and these warnings are because the person who wrote Hebrews, we don't know who it is, it's an anonymous author, but this was originally a sermon that was turned into a letter. And these warnings are actually evidence of that because he's not just interested in doing theology for theology's sake. He actually wants to give you some practical application. He actually wants to to move from lofty theology and move from theory to a very sharp and even pointed word of warning. And his purpose in doing so is to keep Christians going until the very end. In a very real way, we as Christians are on a lifelong journey. Would you agree with that? The Christian faith is not something you sign up for for a little while, and then then when you get tired of it, you abandon. No, Jesus calls us to pick up our cross and follow him from the day that we meet him until the very last day of our lives. And so the the writer of Hebrews, this preacher who's given this sermon is trying to motivate his hearers and that includes us to persevere till the very end. It is not enough to start out the Christian life. He is interested that we finish well. The writer of Hebrews is concerned that we finish well. I would actually go so far as to say that God himself is concerned that you and I finish well. And there's something that, we have to talk about even before we dive into this passage because I recognize that tonight as I'm speaking, I'm speaking to a mixed group of people. Some of you are in widely different places. Some of you here may have been Christians for a very long time and you have a great deal of assurance in your salvation. Some of you may have been more recent converts or some of you maybe have been Christians for a while but you have neglected to follow Jesus in the way that you should. Some of you here tonight may not even be Christians yet and so I have to... uh, put a little caution before you how I speak of this because the way that I speak can have different effects depending on who's hearing it. One of the beautiful things about the Christian faith is that we can have assurance of salvation. Is that good news to anybody? That we can know because of the work that Jesus did on the cross, dying in our place, rising again from the dead, you and I can know that we know that we know that we belong to Jesus, And it doesn't matter if we stumble. It doesn't matter if we fall. It doesn't matter if we sin. It even doesn't matter if we wander for a little while because if we really truly belong to Jesus, he will keep us persevering to the end and we can have assurance of salvation. I have a couple of different friends, two different friends, who were actually part of bona fide cult groups. One of them so much so that they were in the desert, I kid you not, digging bunkers underground to move into, like a for real cult group. And what they've both told me is that these cult groups would use fear as one of the control tactics that you could never know if you were good enough. No matter how high up the cult group rankings you went, there was always another level and you were always very insecure and you never knew if you were truly ever good enough for God or for the cult leader or for whatever it was. The Christian faith, friends, is not like that, amen? You and I can know that we belong to Jesus. You and I can have assurance of salvation. In fact, in the letter of Hebrews, the writer multiple times says, I'm writing these things to you so that you can know, so that you can draw near confidently to the throne of grace. The Bible's very concerned that we have assurance of our salvation. However, let me also say this. There is such a thing as false assurance. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's the type of assurance that says, well, I guess I'm a Christian because I go to church on the weekends and I just try to be a good person. How many of you know that just being a good person is not what being a Christian is? Some people, oh yeah, I'm a Christian because I got that census paperwork and I didn't check Jew or Buddhist or Muslim, so I guess I'm a Christian, right? Now, the Christian life is about having an encounter with Jesus in which you pass from spiritual death to spiritual life and you are never the same from that day forward. It doesn't mean you don't also try to do good things and go to church on the weekend, but it's just so much more than that. And so there is such a thing as false assurance. And so in the book of Hebrews and in other places in the New Testament, we are encouraged, yes, to have assurance, but also to test ourselves to examine ourselves. There's a a verse in 2 Corinthians 13 where the apostle Paul says, examine yourself, test yourself to see if you truly are in the faith. And this warning passage in Hebrews is kind of like that as well. Yes, you can have assurance of your salvation. No, I am not here to try to terrify anyone. However, we need to look at ourselves with sober judgment. And I would even go so far as to say, that if there's a sharpness or an edge to what I say tonight, sorry, but I'm not sorry. Because this is the Word of God, and it's good for us. And if God is our loving Heavenly Father, then He has good intentions for it, and it's our responsibility to try to drop the defensiveness that we so easily fall into. Amen? Or is that just me? Thank you. I got one guy. Here's my proposition for tonight. Christians must be careful to not drift into apathy, but seek to put their spiritual gifts to use for the advancement of the gospel. And as we unpack this passage, we're gonna see three primary elements that the writer of Hebrews wants us to focus on. He wants us to focus on the danger of drifting. He's gonna point out the justice of God's judgment, and he's also gonna point out the surprise of salvation. So let's go back to verse one and look at this danger of drifting. Therefore, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. I actually want to just pause for a minute and draw your attention to the word, therefore. Sometimes we go past these little words uh, in the Bible that are incredibly important. Do you know what that word, therefore, means? It means that we are jumping off all of that stuff that we learned in Hebrews chapter 1 over the last couple of weeks. Did you notice in Hebrews chapter one, there is not one single command that is given? Not one instruction, not one command. The entirety of Hebrews chapter one is this preacher kind of losing his mind over how amazing Jesus is. He's greater than the prophets, he's greater than the angels. The message he's given is greater. Jesus is amazing. He takes us through some really high and lofty theology about Jesus. Uh, Pastor Shane last week unpacked really well all of this stuff about Jesus being greater than the angels. It's some deep theology. But this preacher is not just interested in our minds being filled with information about God, he cares that our lives are affected. Therefore, based on all this information we've learned, what do we need to do about it? Pay attention, don't drift. God is not concerned with just filling your head with information about him. The Bible says in the book of James that the demons have really good information about God. The demons probably have better theology than all of us, but they don't worship Jesus. They don't live for Jesus. That information doesn't actually do anything in them. Therefore, not just empty theory or lofty theology, but deeply connected to life. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention because if not, what's going to happen? We will drift away. We will drift away from this message. This word in the Greek, the New Testament was written in the, in the language of Greek. This word is very interesting. It's the only time in the entire Bible that this specific word is used. And so we don't have a lot to compare it to in the rest of the Bible, but commentators, Bible scholars, they they started looking in other books, other literature that was written around the same time in the same language, and they found that this word drift away uh, sometimes is used like when a ring slips off of somebody's finger. Or sometimes it's when snow is drifting down the side of a mountain Most commonly, however, they found that this word is a nautical term referring to when a boat comes unanchored or comes loose from its moorings and kind of floats off. And actually, if you fast forward to Hebrews chapter 6, he talks about our faith being a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. It seems like the, the writer of Hebrews is using this kind of as a nautical metaphor, drifting away, the analogy of a boat in the water. How many of you know? How many of you ever been in a boat? Raise your hand. You ever been in a boat? How many of you know? Unless you're sitting in a completely calm lake, if you're in a river or if you're in the sea, if you're in the ocean, if you are doing nothing, you're not actually doing nothing. If you are doing nothing, what's going to happen? You float along. You're carried away by the current. You have to actively paddle. You have to actively motor. You have to actually work against the current or work against the tide to get where you want to get. Otherwise, if you're just sitting there doing nothing, you will drift, but it's not in the direction that you want to go. It's as if the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us that spiritually speaking, there is no such thing as neutral. There's no such thing as spiritually neutral. You are either taking steps forward in Christian maturity, walking in closer relationship with Jesus, or, my friend, you are falling away. You are drifting away. You do not get to say, I'm just going to call time out and pause on this whole relationship with Jesus thing because in that moment, you have started to drift. The Bible speaks about three great enemies of the people of God, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the devil is our enemy. He, he tempts us. He whispers lies. He speaks to us. And he says, oh, come over here. No, no, don't keep your eyes on Jesus. Come over and look at this distraction. Come over and look at this idol. If we don't stay steadfast on Jesus, we'll drift and start believing his lies. We have the flesh. We have this part of us, even for those of us who are Christians, that still uh, delights in sin. How many of you have parts of your area that are not completely, uh, parts of your, your life, in areas of your life that are not completely perfected yet? All of us. And left to our own devices, we will drift into those sinful tendencies. And the world, the world has systems. The world has powers. The world has a way about it. It's almost as if you're not actively swimming upstream. You're just gonna start floating along with the world, along with what culture says is right and wrong, what culture says is important and valuable. We will drift. You wanna know how to drift? You want a pro tip on how to drift? Just do nothing. Just do Nothing. This kind of drifting this isn't even necessarily active rebellion. You don't even need to join the mafia or become a Yankees fan or anything. Like you can just uh, you can just kind of do nothing. Oh, but on the outside, they look really good, yeah, but they're not doing anything. They're not pursuing Christ. They're not actively putting their sin to death. They're not actively running towards him. You're drifting. You don't even have to drift into heresy, wrong thinking about God, wrong thinking about Jesus. You don't even have to start believing wrong things about Jesus. You could just not think about Jesus at all. And the great tragedy is that this tremendous loss occurs silently. This isn't someone stamping their feet and saying, I want nothing to do with Jesus and and making a big show. There's no warning lights. There's no alarm bells. There's no flashing uh, lights and signal. It's just kind of a quiet drift away. And this tremendous loss happens and it's really quiet. At this point, a really uh, important question comes up. A really controversial question comes up. The question comes up, are we talking about a Christian here? Can someone who is genuinely saved, can someone who is genuinely a Christian actually drift away so far from God that they lose their salvation? Because he's, he's talking about people who have heard this gospel message. Seems like he's talking to Christians. He, he's also talking to people in a minute. He's gonna talk about judgment. So he's not just talking about a little bit of drifting. He's talking about being judged. He's talking about Hell. Can a Christian lose their salvation? Now, let me say a couple things about this. First of all, it's not just theory for many of us. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you know somebody that at one point professed to be a believer in Jesus and now you look at their life, there's just no evidence whatsoever that they're actually walking with Jesus? I can think of a handful of people where I've been in a, a pastoring role to them over the years and they, their life is just a train wreck. I don't know if they're actually a Christian. I don't know. At one point, they said they were, but I just don't have any evidence. I don't see any fruit in their life to point to. It's heartbreaking, amen? It can't just be theory. It's, it's real life for many of us. Some of this, this is your friends. This is your siblings. This is your family members. Some of you, may even be a spouse. The second thing I want to say about it is the writer of Hebrews doesn't say much here, does he? he kind of raises this conundrum and then just moves on. We will address this topic multiple times throughout the book of Hebrews and in later chapters, we'll get into it much deeper. But let me just say a couple of things really briefly. Can a Christian drift? Yes, a Christian can drift, but never for long. First of all, Jesus said, those who belong to me are safe and no one can ever snatch them out of my hand. So if you belong to Jesus... You're secure. Secondly, a Christian is not somebody who fills out a card or prays a prayer one time and then doesn't do anything about it. No, a genuine Christian is someone who makes it to the end. A genuine Christian isn't someone who just has an emotional experience at a youth group retreat. Uh, A genuine Christian isn't someone who just has a a, a time of response during a, a time of worship or singing. No, a genuine Christian is someone who maybe has that moment but then follows Jesus to the end. That's a genuine Christian. Think about the parable of the soils that Jesus told. He talked about these different soils and the seeds would kind of start to grow and then they would just die away and they end up being thrown into the fire. The one that makes it to the end, that's a genuine Christian. So yes, a genuine Christian can drift, but never for long because God will always pull his people back to himself. I imagine in this room, there's some of you who have drifted. You've drifted into joylessness. Joylessness. Just not walking in close relationship with God, and you're missing out on joy. Maybe there's some of you who, who drifted into fruitlessness. You're not doing anything with your life to help make an impact for the kingdom. You're missing out on the fullness of what Christ has for you. There are probably some here tonight hearing my voice who, at one time or another, have drifted so much that you are now a drag on the other Christians in your life. It's not just that you're falling back, you're actually just not helping. you become a drag. The good news is genuine Christians will hear a word of warning like this and will respond. Oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a drag. I don't want to drift away from Jesus. I want to follow him more closely. I believe that God uses warnings like this to get the attention of his children when we start to drift. And the sad part is that people who drift away never return to Christ it's like they show that they, it wasn't real. It wasn't genuine for them. They made a profession of faith, but it, it wasn't something that really took place at the heart level. Read this quote from one commentator, Buist Fanning. He says this, the warnings in Hebrews about falling away and the exhortations to endure are intended to urge the readers to maintain faith in Christ's high priestly work, not to provoke fear that they may lose their standing with God, nor primarily to test the genuineness of their faith. Nevertheless, those who repudiate Christ or those who reject Christ thereby give evidence that they have never partaken in the benefits of Christ's cleansing sacrifice. And the writer wants his readers to see the consequences of this in the starkest terms, to be motivated to endure by God's grace and so show themselves to be true partakers of Christ. So, what do we do? I'm drifting, I'm, I fear that I may be drifting. The encouragement is to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Pay much closer attention. Let me ask you, Sound City, are you paying attention? Well, yes, Pastor but that kind of sounds like you're urging me towards works. And I thought we were saved by, by grace alone. Yes, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. That is good news, Amen. Your works do not impress God. They do not contribute to your salvation in any way. When we were hopelessly lost, God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross, to rise again, to offer us his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. We are saved by grace alone. However, in that great passage in Ephesians 2 where it talks about being saved by grace alone, it's not of your works so that no one can boast, it immediately says right after that, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus For good works. You are not saved by your good works, but God has saved you for good works. There are things that God wants you, if you are a Christian, to be involved in, to be doing for his kingdom. Well, yes, but Pastor Aaron, that kind of sounds like like legalism. Like, are you telling me I need to just read my Bible more and pray and be really faithful at church? No, no, no. Legalism is if I stood up here and told you that those things would make you better in God's sight. It is not legalism to encourage you to walk obediently with God. It is legalism if I said that makes you better than somebody else or more acceptable in God's sight. We have got to get out of this mistaken idea that obedience is the same thing as legalism. You are called to pay much closer attention to what? To what we have heard. The gospel witness, the scriptures. This message that we've been told about salvation coming through Jesus Christ. How many of you are thankful for the Bible? It's like God knew that we have leaky brains and we would forget the message so he had his prophets and apostles write it down. That is amazing. The words of God written down that I can access anytime I want. And some of us are better at quoting statistics from the starting lineup of our favorite team than we are about quoting scripture. Is it a sin to be a fan of football? No. But when the proverbial storm comes, when the proverbial stuff hits the fan, those statistics in that starting lineup aren't going to do you jack squat of good. But the word of God stands forever. Starting lineups change, but the word of God stands forever. I just came up with, that's a good, I'm going to tweet that later. Is it a sin to have a favorite TV show? No, but I get really concerned when I hear people who are better at quoting lines from that TV show than they are quoting the word of God. What is it that you're hiding in your heart? What is it that you're paying the most close attention to? Is it God's word or is it something else? The writer of Hebrews wants you to know that if you are paying more close attention to something besides the word of God, that you are in danger of drifting. Proverbs talks about keeping your heart with all vigilance, paying really careful attention. So what happens to those who are apathetic and who are inattentive to this message? Sad news is judgment. Look at this, verse two. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Look at what he's saying here. He's going back to the angel stuff that we studied last week. He's saying uh, God delivered his law to Moses, to the people of Israel in some mysterious way that we don't fully understand through the angels. And this was a good word. This was a reliable word. How many of you know that God's gift of the law to the people of Israel was a good thing? But what happened? The people broke it. They broke it all the time. And what did God do? God brought justice every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. People lost their lives. The people of Israel were deported and exiled from the promised land. They received recompense for ignoring the word of God's law. Now a better word has come, a greater word, the word of the gospel. And it's not come through angels. It has come through Jesus Christ himself, the son of God. If this judgment happened when people ignored this first word of God in the law, what do you think is going to happen? Happen to those who ignore the message of the gospel, sometimes in our culture, we have this mistaken, wrong headed idea that in the Old Testament, God was cranky and grumpy and just looking for people to judge, and then Jesus showed up and it was like all gluten free muffins and yawning music, and it was all just happy, happy all the time, and that is wrong. First of all, our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Second of all, who talked about hell more than anyone else in the whole Bible? Jesus did. Well, I thought he said, turn the other cheek and love your enemies. Yeah. And he said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in the kingdom and you'll be cast down to utter darkness. Jesus spoke of hell. Jesus spoke of the wrath of God. Jesus spoke of judgment a great deal to ignore this message that the Son of God himself has spoken will result in greater judgment than even that that was experienced by the Israelites, the Old Testament people of God. Now, you and I, we bristle at the idea of judgment. This is a safe place, we can be honest. We'd rather hear some of those messages about feeding the hungry and being nice to each other. We don't like to hear messages about judgment, do we? I'd be honest with you, I'd rather deliver a message about something else besides judgment because it's uncomfortable. And I think we bristle, we push back, we don't like the idea of judgment for a couple reasons. First of all, we misrepresent ourselves. We misrepresent ourselves. We don't look at ourselves with a truly accurate or sober judgment. Okay, uh, show of hands, how many of you have ever used the phrase, well, nobody's perfect? Raise your hand, be honest. How many, okay, how many of you have ever used this phrase about yourself? Nobody's perfect, right? True, nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. Everybody stumbles and falls. But Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after giving all these instructions, one of his closing lines is, so go, be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. Oh, I didn't realize that was the bar. Sometimes we think that God's just gonna grade on the curve and as long as I'm better than maybe I think I should be. No, God's standard is perfection. God has said that you will stand before him one day and the bar is perfection. You ready for that day? How about this one? Only God can judge me, right? The musings of that great theologian, Tupac Shakur, right? Only, only God can judge me. It sounds all great, like you can't judge me, only God can judge me. Friends, that ought to terrify us. If you judge me, whatever. What's the worst you could do, right? Badmouth me on Facebook? God has the power to send us to hell. Only God can judge me. That ought to to scare us. We misrepresent ourselves. We think, well, my motives are pretty good. Look at this, though, these words in verse two. It says, every transgression or disobedience. Transgression or disobedience. If you got your your, your highlighter or your pen, those are great words to underline. Transgression or disobedience. Transgression means there's a line. We know that there's a line. We know we're not supposed to cross that line. And then what do we do? We cross the line. Any of you who have ever spent time with children, maybe parents, you know that when you put something like that in front of a child, don't touch this thing, they will obsess on that thing and just sit there and look, but now I have to. Why did you tell me not to? Now I have to. I would submit to you, none of us ever really grow out of that. We just get more sophisticated in our masking of it but there's a line and I just, I want to cross it. It's willful. This, this word disobedience, I, I don't do a lot of stuff in the Greek often, but this one was really interesting to me. The word disobedience, I looked it up and, and kind of the two root words had to do with sideways and hearing. The implication kind of being, you only hear what you want to hear. Disobedience. Well, I heard what God said, but I think maybe he actually meant this and I'm just going to do this. I had a situation last week with my oldest daughter where she walked up to me and she said, Dad? Can we have ice cream? Now, the words I said were, no, not right now. She immediately, immediately turned away from me and went to her sister's, dad said we could have ice cream in a little while. (laughs) No, I did not. I said, no, not right now. I haven't thought about later, probably not later either. I don't know. But I just said, no, not right now. And she heard, we get to have ice cream in a little while. Friends, I love you. We do this thing to God all the time. God says this, I heard what I wanted to hear and so I'm just gonna try to get away with what I can because I have selective hearing. We misrepresent ourselves. Second, we misunderstand God. God is creator. He has the right to govern as he sees fit and yet we judge him for it. Many in our culture, many in the Christian church view God's judgment as some sort of cranky explosion. Maybe you had uh, an earthly father who had a very short fuse. No, God, is, God has a very long fuse. God, God repeatedly tells us that he's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But the fact is, is that there does come a day when we have to face judgment. And if we haven't surrendered ourselves to Jesus, then we will face that ultimate judgment. God's judgment is not a, a cranky explosion, but it's measured and it's just and it's intentional. This is what uh, theologian and, and pastor J. A. Packer says about it. He says, the explicit presupposition of all that we find in the Bible on the torments of those who experience the fullness of God's wrath is this, that each receives precisely what he deserves. The day of God's wrath, Paul tells us, is also the day when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And in that day, God will give, according, will give to each person according to what he has done. Or sometimes they say, well, God, I just didn't know any better. No, that's also not true. The Bible says very clearly that God has given us every opportunity to know him. Packer goes on and says this, God's wrath in the Bible is something which people choose for themselves. Before hell is an experience inflicted by God, it is a state for which a person himself opts By retreating from the light, which God shines in his heart to lead him to himself, nobody stands under the wrath of God except those who have chosen to do so. It's one of those yikes statements. I had a conversation with someone who was not a Christian last week and they were kind of describing their relationship with God. And after a few minutes, I realized this God that they were describing is not the God of the Bible, but this God was someone who, who, who really agreed a lot with this person. In fact, so much I thought, wow, this, this God kind of sounds almost like you're describing yourself. Friends, if you have a God who never disagrees with you, it's not God that you worship, it's yourself. If your God never disagrees with you, if your God never tells you that you are wrong, it's yourself that you're worshiping and you're projecting that image onto God. Number three, we don't like justice because we misunderstand it. In the Bible, justice is concerned with equality. Think about the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's actually really good news, right? Because how many of you know, uh, we like to escalate things. You stole $100 from me, I'm gonna take $1,000 from you. You took my tooth, I'm gonna take your head. We we one up one another. That's That's not just me, right? We do this. As human beings, we, we tend to want to say, no, I'm going to let you know. I'm going to make you pay. And it's not equity. It's not justice we're concerned about. It's actually a form of vengeance. I want to extract from you all that you took from me and more. I'm going to make you suffer so that I can feel better. Okay, honest confession time. This is real talk. This is a safe place. This is a, we're a safe group here tonight. right? Ready? How many of you have ever had the experience where someone did something rude to you, maybe they cut you off in traffic and they, they, they irritated you and you're really mad and then within minutes, something bad happened to them like the cops got them and pulled them over and you were like, yeah, that's right. You got what you deserve. It's a safe place you can admit you've had that experience, right? That's right. They did that terrible thing. They get what they deserve. Sometimes we, we buy into this very unbiblical idea of karma, what goes around comes around. It's just the universe's way of sorting itself out. It's a very non-biblical idea. And so we see somebody else getting what they had coming, and we're like, yeah, and then something bad happens to us, and we're like, but why? Why would that happen to me? I I don't deserve that. I'm such a good person. I was just late for work. That's why I accidentally cut them off, officer, right? What happens when the shoe's on the other foot? We don't actually Really understand justice. We don't truly desire justice in that way. Justice in the Bible and God's judgment isn't just about punishing, it's about God sorting out all of the tangled knots of the universe. I don't recommend that you do this, but have you ever just sat around and thought about how messed up the world is? It's not a very pleasant Saturday afternoon. But if you do, you, you, you could actually start to get pretty hopeless, amen? The world's a messed up place. You think about the, the repercussions, how many things are, are wrong, how many things are messed up and how they're all interconnected and what can be done about it. You know, last week uh, there was yet another mass shooting at a, a college in Oregon, and right now in the news and on social media, a lot of people are, are going back and forth. What should we do about it? Do we need to put armed guards at every school in America? Do we need to ban guns? Do we need to, we need to do this or that to, to really solve the problem? And there's a place and a time for those conversations. We should have those conversations. But here's where I was thinking this, this last week. I'm sitting there thinking about it. Okay, this shooter made a really evil and bad decision on that day when he went and, and, and committed this atrocity how many sinful and evil and bad decisions has he made over the years that led up to this one moment? And then what's more, I was wondering how many sinful and evil decisions were made by others who hurt him and damaged him that that contributed to him acting out the way that he did. We can talk about putting a bandaid on the problem, but only God has the sovereign view to truly be able to sort out all of the knots that are in the universe. Think about that. We don't really understand justice. At some point, we have to humble ourselves and say, God, I may not get it, I may not understand it, but I'm gonna trust that your ways are perfect and that you are a just God and that you are a good God. Justice is a good thing. Amen, Sound City? Equity, it's a good thing. But let me tell you something. Justice is good. Even the idea of God's judgment is good. But do you know what's better? Do you know what is better than justice? Do you know what is greater than, than equity and getting what we deserve? Do you know what's better, church? The gospel. The gospel of God's grace, the gospel of God's mercy, this great salvation. Picking back up in the middle of verse three, it, this great salvation he was just talking of, was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Sound City Bible Church, the good news is that though you and I have been sinful, that though you and I stand before a holy, God condemned, deserving of his righteous judgment, that on the cross, Jesus Christ took our place. And instead of justice, we have been invited to receive mercy. That Jesus lived a perfect life that you and I have never lived, that Jesus died on the cross in our place, paying the penalty that we ourselves could not ever pay if we were given 10 million years. We couldn't pay off an infinite debt to an infinitely holy God, but Jesus paid it. Jesus paid it all. And what's more, on the third day, guess what? He rose from the dead. The tomb is empty, church. This is amazing news. I don't know if you realize this. It's Sunday. We're worshiping Jesus on a Sunday because the tomb is empty. He is not like other religious founders who claimed to show us the way to God. No, he says, I am God. I have the power over sin. I have the power over death. And I am choosing to move towards you in love and instead of justice. Praise God. That's good. news. I hope you need some good news. Things were looking dark there for a minute. Words fail to speak of this great salvation. It's not just any kind of salvation. It's not a mediocre salvation. This is not your average salvation. This is certainly not some pull yourselves up by your bootstrap salvation or try harder to be good salvation. No, this is nothing less than the power of the living God himself coming into our hearts and lives and doing amazing work. This is a great salvation salvation. This salvation is kind of a a big term that encompasses a lot of other pieces. Pieces like predestination. This is part of what it means to be saved. It means that God chose you to be one of his children before the foundations of the earth. People get hung up on predestination sometimes, but as I read this in the scriptures, predestination means that God wants you. And you didn't sneak into the family on a technicality or, or accidentally sneak in through the side door. No, God loves you and he chose you and he wants you to be a part of his family. Salvation includes propitiation, the idea that God has just wrath on sin and you and I deserve it, but on the cross, Jesus took it and there's no more wrath left for you. And even tomorrow, when you stumble and fall into sin, God's heart towards you is still love because the judgment that you deserved was taken out on Jesus, and there's grace and mercy for you, propitiation. This great salvation means relational reconciliation, that that was once, what was once broken is now brought into right alignment. Have any of you seen a marriage that was in shambles be reconciled? Have any of you ever seen a friendship that was just messed up, get, get reconciled? It's a beautiful thing. I recently had an opportunity to, to celebrate a vow renewal with some people who had gone through a really difficult time in their marriage. I feel like we watched a miracle that God did in their marriage. And let me tell you what, it is nothing compared to the miracle of a restored right relationship with our Father God. Salvation, this great salvation includes regeneration where God gives us a new heart, a new spirit. He makes us come alive spiritually. This great salvation includes justification where God says, I'm declaring you to be righteous and I'm going to look at you as though you were as perfect as Jesus Christ himself. And when you stand before me on the last day for judgment, your, your verdict is already done. It's not guilty. You can know now in advance what your verdict is going to be. It includes redemption and ransom, being freed out of the slavery of sin. How many of you are thankful that Jesus frees us from slavery to sin? That we don't have to live in the indulgence of ourselves the way we once did, but that God frees us to live a new life that's pleasing to him. This great salvation includes expiation, which is a a fancy theological term that simply means washing and cleansing, Because our sin defiles us and sins of other people defiles us and the blood of Jesus purifies us and washes us white and clean. This great salvation includes adoption. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I can kind of imagine a king who would forgive a great debt. I have no category in my mind for that king who would then take his greatest enemies and say, I'd like to adopt you and give you a full share of the inheritance of the family. That blows my mind every time that God would adopt us into his family. This great salvation includes sanctification that God progressively cleans us up, makes us look more and more like Jesus. That's good news, right? Everyone's spouses said, yeah, that's really good news, right? And lastly, this great salvation includes glorification. It means that one day the trumpet will sound and the sky will be rolled back like a scroll and we'll see Jesus descending on the clouds of heaven. And all those who are dead, all those who sleep in the dust of the earth will rise. If, if we happen to be alive, when that moment happens, we'll be caught up into the clouds with Jesus. We'll be transformed from these lowly mortal bodies that we have into glorified resurrection bodies. No more cancer, no more rheumatoid arthritis, no more diabetes, no more sin, no more death. Glorification. Church, is this a great salvation or what? What? It's got implications for this life. It's got implications for the life to come. Oh, by the way, it's eternal. It's eternal. Maybe life's tough for what? 60, 70, 80, maybe 100 years. Oh, it's really hard. Then you die and you get to be with Jesus forever. That's good news. (laughs) It's kind of morbid sounding, but it's good news. Eternal life, church. Eternity. The salvation was declared at first By the Lord. This isn't just any salvation. This is Jesus Himself showing up and saying, I want to save you, I want to forgive you, I want to redeem you. This is from Jesus. It starts with God Himself. And it was attested to us by those who heard. None of us heard Jesus declare this message of salvation, but we have it written down in the scriptures and we have a reliable witness. Thank God for this reliable witness, amen, attested to us by those who heard. And here we are 2,000 years later hearing the same message because God inspired these, these men to write these things down. Third, God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. God proved it with his power that this gospel message was for real. Looking at these words, miracles, that in the Greek that comes from the word dunamis, which is where we actually get our word dynamite. It's something powerful. Something explosive. The word wonders, it it really means that. Like, I wonder what just happened. Kind of leaves you you scratching your head. But my favorite one of these these three terms that are kind of overlapping is signs. You know why? What do signs do? Signs point you to something else. I'm so thankful that we serve a God who does miracles. At Sound City Bible Church, we believe, get this, that God still does miracles. God can still heal people. God can still uh, raise the dead. But every one of those signs or wonders or various miracles that he does serves to point us to the deeper and greater reality that the greatest miracle is that God would bring a spiritually dead person to spiritual life. That God would save people. It's a sign, it's a wonder. I pray that God does some miracles in and through our church. And I pray that we would rejoice not in the miracles themselves, but in the God of the miracles and that he saves sinners like you and like me. And then lastly, look at this. I wanna, I wanna focus in on this phrase for a minute and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Who do these gifts of the Holy Spirit go to? If you're a Christian, it's you. Gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to God's people. And God gets to decide, we don't get to decide what gifts we get, but God gives gifts to all of his people. It's very interesting to me that this section closes with this idea of gifts of the Spirit because Here's what, I, here's what I believe. I believe these gifts of the Holy Spirit are given so that we might help advance the gospel, so that we might help share the gospel with others. This is what John Calvin actually says. Why did God distribute the gifts of his spirit except in part that they might be helps in promulgating it, the gospel, and in part that they might move through admiration the minds of men to obey it. God now shows that this great salvation is real through the spiritual gifts he gives to his people. I believe that some of us are drifting and are apathetic because we are not putting to use the gifts that God has given to us. We are not using the gifts that God has given to us, and instead, we're drifting. We're drifting into apathy, we drift into laziness, we drift into fruitlessness, we drift into joylessness. Church, God has given you gifts. God has given you spiritual gifts. What are they? No, I don't have any. No, I don't believe that. If you have the Holy Spirit, then you have gifts. How are you using them? Well, I'm too scared. Well, if God's on your side, what's there to be scared of? Well, I just don't know how. Well, ask somebody. Look, I've got an answer for all your excuses. You have gifts of the Spirit. Don't drift. Seek to put them to use. Some sermons, uh, you kind of walk away maybe sometimes thinking, oh, I got a lot of really good, helpful information. I literally learned a lot. Today is not necessarily one of those sermons. This is a, I need to do something sermon. So let me close with a word of encouragement for a couple of different people who may be here today. If you are a person who is not a Christian, today is a day that Jesus is calling out to you. You have heard this message. Please do not ignore it. The stakes are very high. God loves you. I love you. Others in this room that you don't even know yet love you dearly. And we want to see you receive this great salvation that was spoken of. Please do not neglect this message. I'm not trying to scare you, but the real warning of the scriptures is that if you reject Christ and this offer of salvation, that what awaits you on the other side is judgment. And I don't want that for you. And the heart of God is not that for you. It says in the Bible that he desires all men to repent and receive knowledge of salvation. Maybe you need to pray a prayer today, something simple. I remember my dad, my dad, when he was here this summer, he shared his salvation prayer at 23 years old after living a really wild life of partying and really messing up his life. Here, here was his profound prayer. He said, God, I have royally screwed up my life. If you want it, you can have it. And that, that's it. <laughs> that's the end of the prayer. God's not interested in your eloquence. He's interested in your sincerity. Some of you are drifting Christians. You are a Christian, but you are neglecting the gifts that God has given to you. And you're drifting into apathy. You're drifting into fruitlessness. Tonight, I want to encourage you, take stock of the great salvation that you've received. Take stock of this tremendous gift that God has given to you and put the gifts to use that he's placed in you. This is a day for you to respond. I don't know how, I'm not going to prescribe something to you. Maybe you need to have a conversation with someone. Maybe you need to join a serving team. Maybe you need to do something. Maybe there's somebody you have been meaning to go talk to about this great salvation. Maybe there's somebody that you need to go take a meal to. I don't know. I don't know what it looks like, but the Holy Spirit does, and I'm hoping and praying that you do, and he reveals it to your heart. So today is a day to take action. And lastly, like I said at the beginning, I know I'm speaking to a mixed audience. Some of you are fearful Christians, you have a sensitive conscience and you thought, oh no, I'm drifting. I'm afraid that I've drifted too far. What if I've drifted too far from Jesus and you're, you're fearful, you're agitated, anxious right now? Might I suggest to you that that anxiousness you're experiencing is actually evidence that your heart's in a really good place? Because if you were really drifting away from Jesus, you wouldn't care. The fact that you care says a lot maybe you're drifting, maybe you're not, take heart, be encouraged. God has you. Let's respond, church. We're going to respond in a variety of ways. The first way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. Uh, The Bible says, church, that God loves a what kind of giver? A cheerful giver. So we don't do guilt or arm twisting here. If you would like to give, please give. If you are a Christian who, who God has saved, this is an act of worship. If you're a guest, no obligation. If you want information on how to give online or text to give, it's in your weekly handout. While they're collecting the offering, let me go over a few discussion questions for us as a church that we can talk about this week in our homes and our community groups. Number one, where might you be in danger of drifting? Where are you in spiritual neutral? And what is Jesus asking you to do about it? How about just getting real right out of the gate? You guys okay with that? Number two, why do we bristle at the idea of God's judgment being just and why is his justice a good thing? Number three, what does the Bible have to say about this great salvation? I put what all does the Bible have to say and you can't really do that because then your community groups would be uh, lasting throughout all of eternity because his salvation is so amazing. But, But why is God's salvation so great? And then also make it personal. What has been your experience? What has been so great about God's salvation in your own life? And number four, what spiritual gifts has God given you and how is he asking you to put them to use? A couple things to pray about. Pray that we would all pay careful attention to not drift. Pray that those who are drifting would be drawn close to Jesus and his people. I wanna encourage you against gossip, but you do know people in your life who maybe you're concerned about who are not walking closely with Jesus. This is a great week to be praying for them. And number three, pray that we would all use our spiritual gifts for the building up of Jesus' church. We're also gonna respond through communion, a celebration of the Lord's table. The bread stands for Jesus' body that was broken for us. The wine the juice stands for his blood. And tonight as we partake of the bread and of the wine, may it serve as a reminder to us of this great salvation that we've received. If you're not a Christian, again, the invitation is give your sins to Jesus, trust in him, come forward for communion. Join us at the table because this salvation is so great. We're gonna sing. Sean and the band are gonna lead us in a time of response through singing. So I'm gonna invite you to stand if you would. I'll pray and we'll begin our time of singing and and celebration of the Lord's Supper. Father God, thank you for this great salvation. God, forgive us for the times when we do drift. Forgive us for the times when we are apathetic. And God, I pray that you would use this message tonight, this, this stern word, in the hearts of your people to draw us closer to you that where we may be in danger of drifting, you would just pull us back towards yourself. God, I pray right now for anyone here tonight who's not yet a Christian, would you, would you do that miraculous work in their heart? Bring them to yourself. Show them your great salvation. And may we all rejoice in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Church, let's respond.